0: Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call upstream and each day brings a new challenge this is the oil and gas upstream podcast where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen Welcome to Oil & Gas Upstream. This is Elena Milker, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for the Oil & Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded Energy Consulting, and joined the Oil & Gas Global Network as a podcast host. I want to invite you to go to OGGN's website and take a look at all the other podcasts in the network. And the new merchandise that's available now, maybe even pick up the oil and gas upstream t-shirt that reminds us that only the bit finds oil. And don't forget to sign up for OGGN's weekly newsletter, Sunday Update. All the links are in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Joe Battier with Tavera, formerly Petrolern. Hi, Joe. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Hello, Elena. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be on the show.
0: Great, great. Well, tell us about this Tavera PetroLearn transition and what you do there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I will start with a little bit about me. I'm the geothermal lead for Tavera. So my focus is scoping out geothermal projects, helping our clients understand what they're trying to understand, what they're asking, and how we can help them find it and optimize it if they have a resource there. To Vera, we're a subsurface consulting company focused on helping people make make sense of of the subsurface if they've got any type of of drilling problems, geomechanics problems, challenges, and desires for understanding what resources they have or how to best utilize the reservoir those are the kind of questions we work on now you you pointed out vera formerly Petrolearn we did go through a name change so some of and, and a full rebrand some of the some of your listeners may have known us as Petrolearn we were Petrolearn for almost a little over 10 years and just in April of 2023, rebranded to Tavera. So the background there, PetroLearn was originally started by our CEO, focused on teaching complex geomechanics training courses. That quickly morphed into complex geomechanics consulting because a lot of the people saw the challenges that, that our CEO, Hamid, was, was solving and decided he would be better suited to do that than trying to do that in-house. And that was a a good majority of of those first 10 years. And more recently, we have seen the the energy transition and the expansion into CCS and geothermal and other subsurface challenges. And we wanted to show that, that more all-encompassing, focus of our company in that our job is to bring ground truth to our clients to help them understand the reservoir better and how to best utilize that subsurface component. So really that that's actually what Tavera is. It's a combination of of Terra and Vera to say oh ground truth. <laughs> I always forget if it's if it's Latin or Greek or it's it's one of those ancient languages, and then a word mashup.
0: So so I think it's Latin, terra, right? Uh, translates into terrain and, you know, the Romance languages mm. have a form of terra. And then vera, veritas, uh, would be the Latin form. So. Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. So, um, you know, as former DOE, one of the project areas that I was really um, involved in and really wanting for 20 years was to be able to visualize the subsurface. And I know your company did some some groundbreaking work in that arena and um, trying to help us visualize the subsurface uh, from the perspective of um, carbon storage, but applications on oil and gas and everything. Do you have a little bit of background on that? Can you just give us a little hint about that uh, area?
1: Yeah, yeah. So there are so many different things and and I guess I I didn't highlight that that as we have been doing all of this consulting we are also developing new tools new technology to help visualize the subsurface because that's that's kind of where we're at today we are we as an industry are collecting so much data and we are starting to get all of these conversations around big data and AI and machine learning and seeing how that can be used to scrape the internet to come up with really funny viral cat memes. But (laughs) what we haven't done is apply that in really good, strong ways into geoscience and into the subsurface. And that's kind of what some of the stuff we're doing is, is taking these machine learning algorithms that were developed for some other area and applying that into into subsurface visualization. And so just a few of those different aspects that we work on, one of them's called DDG, which is taking taking drilling data and using that to understand the geomechanics of the subsurface. Another one is we call GeoDeck, which is the one that you were alert- alluding to That is a cloud-native visualization platform. The whole idea with it is that anybody in your company within four or five clicks could start really thinking about how you're using the subsurface and how you can change it by changing a few different parameters. So we were talking about CCS, the whole idea of, say, your geoscience team inputs data And now the CEO or CFO can say, okay, what if we can get an extra, I don't know, three or four tons of carbon every year? Can we get that into our reservoir? And then just with a few clicks, changing a few little parameters, same stuff we do on the internet every day when we're messing with our photos or or modifying them, they can start seeing how much more they can inject and how that would change their economics. So that's the whole idea of GeoDeck is something super simple that anybody can use and also get that 3D image of the subsurface. And then there's Absolutely. a Absolutely. Yeah. There's a few others that we've got that are that are further on the on the development pipeline. And so I think those are the two that that are that are really exciting that I can talk about, but this is one of those exciting things that we do is we see what we're doing to solve problems for our clients and then we say, okay, is this something we can develop into a tool that could then be used either by us internally to help clients faster, or is it something that we could then develop and license for anybody to use so that way everybody gets this benefit?
0: Well, and that's so valuable to us because I think still think that the finest tool we have is our brain., yeah. and if we can delegate a lot of this information to um, you know uh, algorithms, if you will, uh, then it frees up, frees us up to really brainstorm and make connections that you know machines can't. And so yep. I, I'm really always really excited about, about doing that. And of course, in uh, the subsurface sector, we can develop lots and lots of data, and yeah. pulling that together can, can be tricky. So it's a very exciting project. I wish we had it around you know, 20, 30 years ago, but the world wasn't ready yet. Yeah. We're ready now, and, and you're pushing on that. Yeah, no, that's really good. Tell us a little bit about your background, Joe. What makes you qualified to help customers and your clients? Really solve their problems.
1: That that's a a great question. Everybody should always ask that whenever <laughs> you're talking to somebody. <laughs> what makes you qualified to talk to me? Uh, so
0: yeah, oh, as we are.
1: Yeah, my background is is um, so I I have a PhD in technically in geophysics. It's all applied. I got that from SMU, Southern Methodist University, and it was focused on geothermal, geophysics, doing a large-scale mapping project of the state of Alaska, and then using that first to look at how the near subsurface is warming in one location. Used it to highlight, I think I highlighted about a dozen different areas that should be further explored that should have that technically should have geothermal viability or geothermal resources that could be developed from a technical standpoint. And then the other side of it was a a thermal modeling exercise looking at the thermal evolution of the Northern Cordillera Volcanic Province. So Mm -hmm. all of that is basically I, I've i looked at from a technical side, where are there geothermal resources? I've asked why are there geothermal resources in these areas? And then went even a little bit further to say, how would these go about getting explored? And what are those steps or necessary components that may be there to have a viable commercial product? So that was all my PhD. Very similarly, I have focused on other areas like East Texas, the Gulf Coast, a little bit of work in Idaho and Illinois. So very similar work, except focused on sedimentary basins more recently and really answering these questions all over the place. Is there a resource? If there is a resource, how do we actually produce it? If we can't produce it, is it economic? Those are those questions that I try to answer for clients. Yeah,
0: no, that's absolutely, that's exactly perfect. Everybody needs that. And so just in terms of full disclosure, you and I work for the same um, podcast organization, uh, uh, Oil and Gas Global Network, and tell us about your podcast.
1: Yeah, so outside of my day job where I have my head in the ground my head in the sand, whatever kind of silly <laughs> geology <laughs> Into <pun>. sediments, yeah, <laughs> in the besides stands. that, I've got the energy transition solutions podcast on the oil and gas global network, and that one i I really like it because i get I get to think about this large question of how do we continue to provide abundant, reliable, resilient energy for society? how do we do that for places like the u s that already has a lot of energy, but may want to be decarbonizing? And how do we provide it for places that don't have any energy yet? So I get to think about this big question, and then on top of that, how do we do it while not risking life, while not, while reducing emissions, but also not reducing our our modern creature comforts? So with this large question, there's a lot of different solutions and it's it's really kind of all of the above kind of solution so i get to talk to people working on battery technology people working on energy storage technology efficiency projects and and actually one of my one of my most favorite recently has been siemens energy i talked to them about the largest fastest natural gas turbine in the world. They actually have three, huh? three uh, Guinness Book of World Records for this turbine, because it's the largest and it, it spins up to to hundreds of megawatts in less than 60 seconds, I think. It is Oh
0: my god Yeah.
1: It's it's this <laughs> fascinating idea. And 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 those are the kind of things that answer that question of how do we continue to provide while not risking life and while not reducing quality of life. So.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Well, I love your show. I do listen to it once in a while when I'm not (laughs) podcasting myself. And, um, but as we as we talk about energy transition and all of the above and new projects and new ideas, you're you're engaged in a, a new geothermal initiative with the DoD in Alaska. Tell us uh, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks for bringing that one up. so the this with Fort Wainwright and the DoD, we are working on an initiative exploring for geothermal energy for Fort Wainwright. This is right outside of Fairbanks, Alaska. So this, this area, I was I was just there last week actually with one of my colleagues, Carrie Fellers.
0: It's kind of cold right now, isn't yes. it? Yes. I mean, so ready. it
1: was in the normal the 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 first half of the week it was right around zero anywhere from negative 10 to positive five Fahrenheit. The last two days, it was negative 20. Now, if you've never felt negative 20 degrees, it is when you first walk out, it feels fine. But after about 30 seconds, you're like, okay, this is, this is cold. And if you try to take in a deep breath, it does physically hurt from your, Um, from your esophagus all the way down. It is physically painful. If, so all that to wow. say, this is an area that definitely needs heat, definitely in the winter. <laughs> and and even in the summertime, there are periods where I've been up in Alaska during the summer and it has been 50 degrees all oh. day. It's been cold. Oh. It's been 50 degrees and rainy in the middle of July. So this is an area that uses heat year round. And so they're it is a large energy load for the government. And in case anybody has been following, the DOD has had a recent initiative that they want to start start getting more resilient power and more more on-base, resilient, and decarbonized power. And so this is one of those initiatives to say can this be done how can this be done at a place like Fort Wayne Wright? now with the so at at present we have been collecting all of the existing data right now there's really not that much data there's a few different geo geophysical surveys there's some shallow water wells there's surficial data going out doing the geologic mapping but from a true subsurface understanding, there's really not that much there, so.
0: Because you're near Fairbanks, because yeah, only so. Gas productions on the northern.
1: Yeah, the so sea, it's or? it's near Fairbanks. This is the the Tanana Valley, the Tanana Valley Basin. So anybody who's familiar with Alaska. There is the Tanana Valley, and then a little bit further over, there's the Nanana Basin. Now, the Nanana Basin has a few deep drill holes and has been explored for, for hydrocarbons. But what they have found is they've found some natural gas, and there are some pretty thick coal seams, which has some potential for coal bed methane. But the natural gas is all um, – it is – type one i believe so it's not
0: what does that mean it's not um gas
1: it is not a it's not an algae based um oil so it's not your typical it's not your typical um oil raw feedstock so because of that this feedstock or the the organic matter only will create gas from the last papers I've read. So Uh, it won't create oil and it won't go from oil into wet gas, into dry gas. It will only go straight to gas. So that, that I don't know why I went on that tangent. I think it, to me it's important because it, I think that in itself has limited the amount of exploration that has occurred in interior Alaska Uh, beyond other factors of, of the remoteness, I think that has said, okay, well, because this is only going to be this dry gas, we're not going to do much more exploration. And because of that, we don't have a lot of deep data in the Tanana Basin. And so we really are doing this true greenfield exploration project, even though there are plenty of interior basins in Alaska, there's just not that much data that we can go on.
0: Yeah, you said you said resilience was one of the key uh, objectives for the the DOD. It, is that the same as diversification of energy sources? I mean, how do people get their heat right now? I mean, yeah, help us with that kind.
1: Yeah. So right now there is a coal-fired power plant, and that is a combined heat and power plant. So the majority if not all of the coal comes from the Usabelli coal mine in in Healy and that gets used at the at the coal-fired power plant and that power plant supplies both the heat and the power for the entire base mm-hmm. the the idea of resilience is as you point out diversification as one one side side point having but also having those redundancies. So instead of having one point source for all of the all of the energy, having multiple point sources so that if there are any troubles in any one of those, we have we have backups built into the system. So that makes it it makes it more resilient, more reliable and redundant so that there is there's just more fail-safes.
0: Yeah. So the DOD is trying to improve the energy situation for the base. Yep. It's really limited to the base. And then if, well, who knows the future, but, um, but the main thing, the objective right now is the,
1: yeah, it is for, it's for the base. And this is a thing that, that is not, not just for Fort Wainwright. There are several other projects focusing on geothermal. Some of those include joint base, San Antonio, and Mountain Home Air Force Base in in Mountain Home, Idaho, and then also Fort Irwin in California. So the these are projects. These are just the first projects with the with the DOD's initiative to build resiliency and and low carbon energy. I think that there will be more. That is that is purely my thoughts, and and not not speaking for anybody else, but my my hypotheses. I think there will be more, provided that the the four projects, ours included, end up being successful and show show promise for the rest of the DoD. Yeah.
0: So so the initiative was um, did the DoD invite people to come up with ideas or how, how did this work?
1: Yeah. So it came through the defense innovation unit. The defense innovation unit is a, it is what is called an other transaction authority. And basically it is, it is geared towards being able to pitch geared towards companies, pitching ideas for, For new technology and solutions to specific problems that the DOD has. And there's several different phases that then it's a down select period. And then once you are selected as a viable potential solution, then technically any base can reach out to you and say, okay, we want to prototype your solution. So in this process from what what I've gathered, what people have, have said and published, there were sixty-eight applications or, or ideas pitched as to the DIU for these geothermal projects. And that went through two different down selects. So that was phase one. Anybody can throw in their idea. Phase two was okay now now you've been selected Now you come and talk to us and and pitch your idea and say what you think is, why you think your solution is the best. And then that final down select is, okay, you've been, you have been seen as a viable solution. You are now in the portal. And if somebody wants to reach out to you and prototype your solution, they can. So, and this, this was for anybody who works in the government and works on on government processes to give you a little bit of flavor this process was started maybe around this time last year so i think november december time frame is when we submitted our first phase phase application to the to the call and then we are now active working on the project. We've been working on it. Everything was signed before the end of the fiscal year. So I think that would have been, uh, end of September. Yeah, Is that right? Yeah. Year.
0: Yep. That's it. we yeah. got it.
1: So end of September, we had a contract in place and we're moving forward. And it, so, I mean, nine, 10 months from initial call to Contracted starting work. I don't know how that compares to everything else with the government, but for most well, FOAs, I feel like that's that's pretty fast.
0: That's lightning speed <laughs> in my in my experience. You know, being the former director for uh, oil and gas and investing in yep. projects. Yes, that's pretty pretty good, pretty fast. Now, this is actually. Uh, we're calling it a project but it's not a project it's a, is it a study is it a paper study yes so what is
1: it? it is right now it is all all desktop and some non-invasive geophysical data collection so we are first trying to understand what the potential is and so really it as as you said earlier initiative is really probably a better term because right now it is really trying to understand what's there. At this point, there is no nothing going into the ground yet, nothing coming out of the ground yet. It is just what is there and what would it look like to integrate this into the existing energy system? And I think that would be an important point to remember that with, with all of these, there, the idea of resiliency and redundancy there, there's likely no energy being taken offline. And again, this is me postulating. This is not, I'm not speaking for anybody. This is my, my thoughts, but I would imagine no energy is going to be taken offline. If anything, we will be needing more energy for, for all these projects. So ultimately it's just going to be an energy addition into the existing system, not necessarily removal of anything.
0: And adding to the resiliency
1: yep, yep. of the
0: area. And, and that yep. was the goal.
1: By doing that, building that's, in resiliency. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, um, you know, we, we talked with a lot of people on oil and gas upstream, and uh, one of those was um, Dr. Scott Tinker with the Bureau of Economic Geology and University of Texas, Austin. And the whole notion of energy poverty and he's got this great slide deck that everyone's welcome to use and borrow and steal and whatever, update and use, um, that says that 70% of the world is living in energy poverty. So they don't have these conversations about resiliency. They, no. They're just grateful for whatever they can get. And another tidbit that stayed with me was that um, a person living in Nigeria uses about per year uses about the same amount of energy as my refrigerator uses per year, wow. and that was very shocking to me. Very shocking to me. So, and I guess the other the other key point and you mentioned this is we don't really take away energy; we only add to it because as we are able to, and the you know brilliance of our minds and our capabilities and using all of the available resources is to try to improve the quality of life for more and more people. And so that takes, that takes energy, all kinds of energy. Yeah. Yeah. So we're almost at the end of our um, time here, Joe. What, tell us anything else you want to share a bit with about the initiative, um, Geothermal Initiative with DOD in Alaska.
1: I think I am just really excited about this initiative. One, I, I did my, my dissertation all around Alaska. So I spent quite a few summers up there getting to meet the people, getting to visit different mining sites and and getting to work with the community. And I'm just really excited to finally be thinking about how do we get more of this energy out of the ground? Because as, as you were just talking about with energy poverty and and how people are are surviving with the energy they have, that is a a very real conversation for Alaska. a lot of the smaller tribal communities they're either generating power with diesel and heating their homes with heating oil, both very expensive and very remote so it it's one of those spots where anything anything that we can do to develop a process or a methodology or an understanding for the region, then we could try and take to these places that are that are, really are struggling. So, I'm excited to be back there and I'm excited to hopefully use this as an example on how we can bring more geothermal to to other areas within Alaska, within remote communities and and to those areas that are struggling with energy problems poverty yeah
0: yeah well considering how cold you said that it was and can be even in the summer i mean wow yes that's that's very important people there. yeah well thank you dr joe Beteer with tavera uh and, and the um geothermal initiative with the dod in alaska thank you so much for being with us today
1: yeah elena thank you for inviting me and it's been a lot of fun
0: it is a lot of fun. And I, and I thank you again for being with us. And I thank everyone who joined us uh, today, who's listening today. Um, this is Elena Milker, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas
1: Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.